my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Thamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Thanks in part to the COVID-19 crisis, India's economy is expected to shrink by at least 9% this fiscal year, a gut punch that comes on the heels of several years of continuously slowing growth. At the heart of India's economic woes is a severe banking crisis that some have argued has sapped the vitality out of India's investment cycle and consumed the energies of government economic firefighters. My guest on the show today was, until recently, one of those called up to put out the fire. Viral Acharya is the CV Star Professor of Economics at the New York University Stern School of Business. From January 2017 to July 2019, Viral was a deputy governor at the Reserve Bank of India, the RBI. He's the author of a brand new book, a compilation of many of his writings during his government stint. It's titled Quest for Restoring Financial Stability in India. It's a pleasure to welcome him to the show for the very first time. Viral, good to talk to you. Uh, Thank you, Milan. My pleasure. Look forward to the interaction. So let me begin by taking us back to the year 2017. You know, I can almost sort of picture it in my head. One day you were sitting in your comfortable office at the NYU Stern School of Business, a tenured professor at one of the world's most prestigious and best ranked business schools. And the next day you were taking a flight from Newark Airport to to go to India to take up a new position as the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank. How did this position, this life change come about? And why did you decide to return home and take the plunge? Uh, yes, in some uh, in some ways it happened because uh, Governor Rajan uh, finished his term uh, at the Reserve Bank of India, and uh, the then Deputy Governor uh, Dr. Patel uh, became the governor, and so the Deputy Governor position in charge of monetary policy, uh, research, and markets uh, became open uh, as a result uh, around. Uh, July or August, uh, I had a sense that the you know this position would be announced uh, for people to apply. Uh, given my background, which was a lot in banking, and you know I I had been doing a lot of advisory roles at various central banks and systemic risk boards that were getting set up after the global financial crisis. Uh, I thought I could be a suitable candidate, at least uh, worth a consideration for the government of India. Uh, So I applied. I had a video interview in early December, I believe, December 2016. Uh, And of course, you know, when you go for these things, you don't know what the competition is. So you don't know who else is in the mix. But I knew that at least I would have a shot. And, you know, it turned out uh, that uh, they did give me a chance. And there I was. Uh, on why I decided to do it uh, for two reasons. One, uh, uh, at a personal level, uh, you know, for someone uh, who is doing research in central banking, financial crisis, uh, systemic risk, uh, macro implications of finance, 
uh, a central bank's uh, a central banker is really like the position to be in. Uh, you can apply your research, you can bring some rigor, data, conceptual frameworks to it, and simultaneously you can learn a lot uh, by being on the job. Uh, but second and foremost, uh, as I explain in the book, uh, I felt that uh, India needed to clean uh, its banking sector at that point of time. Uh, and I thought given all the work I had done in my research as well as with the central banks, uh, I could be the person who could uh, help this effort in a significant way. Uh, I wanted to give back uh, to India in some ways. Uh, I always feel India is always inside me, regardless of where I am. Uh, and I thought uh, this could be a good opportunity, a good time to make that significant contribution. Viral, you mentioned that one of the reasons you were motivated to go back is that the banking sector needed a cleanup and you felt that you could contribute. You know, you argue in the book that a quote unquote silent crisis has been playing out in the Indian banking sector ever since, you know, really the boom and bust of credit-driven fiscal stimulus following the global financial crisis of 2008. And I'm wondering if you could explain to our listeners, who are not all economists by any stretch, why this crisis has been a silent one in your view. Uh, absolutely. So uh, I think it's not just specific to India, it's specific also to China and several other countries or emerging markets, uh, especially where uh, a big part of the banking sector, and in many cases, even other financial firms, such as insurance companies, non-bank finance, is owned by the government. Now, when you have banks that are owned by the government, uh, what happens is that even if they make huge losses, uh, say even twice the quantum of losses that was seen at the time of global financial crisis, uh, depositors in these banks still have the confidence uh, that the government is standing behind uh, their liabilities. Now, as a result of that, you could have uh, losses mounting, banks not generating profits, banks not lending to the real economy, uh, and yet uh, nothing significant happens. Uh, depositors are continuing to go and put their money into the banks, and paradoxically, what I have documented in my research is that at the time of the global financial crisis, even some of the weaker public sector banks actually received further inflows of deposits because the savers actually wanted the safety of being uh, in a government-owned bank, a state-owned bank. Now, why is it nevertheless a crisis? I think it is a crisis because we should not think about uh, banking problems only through the mirror of depositors running for their deposits. Ultimately, why do we care about health of banks? We care about the health of banks because banking is, is a part of the lifeblood uh, through which uh, the real economy prospers. Individuals, small and medium-sized businesses, even large corporations are reliant on efficient flow of bank credit so that they can undertake the productive investments uh, that they might have access to. Now, when you have a bank that is making losses and is not getting recapitalized because actually the depositors don't care, uh, you know, which is the uh, which is the bank they are investing in because it is state-owned, for example. Uh, nevertheless, the real outcomes might not be great. Uh, in fact, what has happened in India, what has happened in several other countries uh, is that 
uh, undercapitalized state-owned banks do two things. Uh, one, they do what is called a zombie lending, uh, which is they keep evergreening the loans of their defaulted borrowers. Uh, there are many terms used for this. Uh, a famous one is extend and pretend. You extend the maturity of a defaulted loan and pretend as though everything is okay. Usually, the regulators turn a blind eye because they are themselves getting compromised and providing regulatory forbearance. But what zombie lending does is that it throws good money of the savers uh, after the bad. And with a state-owned bank, uh, bank, ultimately, this is going to come back to the taxpayers at one point or the other in the form of losses. What is the second thing that these undercapitalized state-owned banks do? They do what is called as lazy lending. They simply buy government bonds because they don't have any capital. So they don't want to take any new risks. They just punt on government bonds, hoping that interest rates will decline. Uh, and at some point, uh, they can make gains. Now, regardless, on the one hand, zombie lending makes the credit to the healthy parts of the economy very expensive. And what does lazy lending do? It generates so little return on bank balance sheet that over a period of time, banks can't even serve the depositor interests very well. And so what gradually has been happening in India is that the state-owned banks are now losing even the share of their deposits in the market. But it's happening at a very glacial pace for it to be called a crisis. Nevertheless, as far as the real engine of the economy is concerned, which is private credit growth, private investments, they are stagnating because a very big part of the banking system, the public sector banks, are simply not in a position to lend well to the economy. That's why I call these a silent crisis. They go on. They can go on for many years, even a decade, even longer than a decade. And what you lose is the growth potential of the economy while all this is playing out. So I feel like we need to step back for a second and maybe provide some additional context for our listeners. And I want to refer to something that you wrote in the opening chapter of your book, where you list a number of motivating questions that you say kept you up at night thinking about uh, how to resolve them. One of them in particular struck me as a genuine puzzle with no easy answers. And I just want to read out that question. Uh, it goes, why are efforts at restoring financial stability seen as contradictory to pursuing growth, even though all evidence points to financial stability being a necessary condition for long-term growth? Uh, you know, a simple way of paraphrasing that would be, you know, can there be no gain without pain? Uh, yes, uh, this is a question that has actually puzzled me, uh, even in the context of developed uh, economies where uh, banks are not necessarily state-owned uh, and, you know, are very often private. And there are several uh, shades to uh, resolving this puzzle. First and foremost, I would say uh, governments uh, tend to be myopic very often uh, in their policy making, especially when growth slows down. Uh, you have an electoral cycle that's demanding that the government have demonstrated a significant track record of being able to keep growth high. And they have a tendency to want to pump prime the economy. Now, if you can't generate stable growth in a short period of time without undertaking uh, a significant uh, analysis or diagnosis of what has gone wrong, figuring out the right structural reforms to undertake, and it may take a couple of years before you are able to put in place those reforms and get the economy back on track. 
Now, what's a convenient way out for the governments uh, is to, if it's state-owned banks, to directly give them quotas or mission uh, uh, targets to lend to specific parts of the economy, especially the vote banks uh, that the governments may be trying to swing in their favor. Uh, If it is private banks, uh, you can get the central bank to be compromised in terms of its lending standards uh, or supervision uh, so that banks are allowed to extend credit, such as the subprime credit that we saw in the United States. So this is one key factor, that governments tend to be myopic in how they want to give a a pretense of growth, uh, especially when electoral uh, compulsions arise. Second key point is that as an individual that's receiving this credit, or even as an analyst uh, on the street that's trying to analyze how the growth is actually beginning to start showing signs of revival when this credit growth picks up, unless you have the perspective that short-term debt-based stimulus, if it is not done with good underwriting quality, is going to lead to a bust of the leverage cycle down the road, that it's very difficult to mop it up, it's costly, it takes long, uh, and it can be very painful uh, for the economy when this leverage uh, bust is getting cleaned up. Unless you have that clear perspective, everyone gets focused on the short-term numbers. So the myopia of the government in its policymaking choices carries over to the recipients of the credit And to an extent, even the analysts who are very often focused on covering quarterly growth numbers or the annual growth numbers and so on. Now, that brings me to the third point. But of course, we have seen this play out over and over and over again in different parts of the world. And yet, why it is that regulators, central bankers who are pushing for financial stability, researchers who keep calling out that, you know, leverage booms go bust if they are not uh, contained in time, why are they, uh, why do they not get the attention they deserve? And I think to sum it up, uh, I would use the title of uh, Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff's book, this time is different. Every situation is a bit different. There's new technology, there's a new government, there are new growth challenges, the global situation is different. It's easy for everyone to revolve around this narrative that uh, growth is weak, we need to kickstart it, we have found the way to kickstart it, credit is booming, the economy is taking off. Uh, and you know the, the voices uh, that are actually leaning against the wind uh, of this mistake are very often few. Uh, and usually they get paid attention to uh, only once uh, the, the the boom has actually gone into a, a bust cycle. I think a part of what researchers such as me, uh, central bankers such as you know Dr. Reddy, who successfully leaned against the wind of the housing cycle in 2006 and 7 in India, the Bank for International Settlements, which has become a big proponent of actually not risking financial stability for short-term growth, What all of these uh, efforts are trying to do is to build greater awareness of the fact that credit-based stimulus has a back-ended risk uh, that it may go bust, that you need to have extremely well-capitalized banking systems. You need to do stress tests. And I think I would end with that thought, which is that stress tests are a great way of focusing the attention of people on risks that have not yet materialized. Uh, The analogy I always give is that of building a bridge. The engineers have figured it out. 
when they build a bridge, the, st- the safety standards that they subject the bridge to is not normal time winds. The question they ask is, can the bridge withstand hurricane or cyclonic winds so that it will not crash, it will not fall apart, it will not become weak for the vehicles that are going from one shore to the other? In my view, we need to elevate the standards of banking regulation to similar safety standards where we say that the financial bridges that are being built from the savers to the borrowers in the economy need to be able to withstand uh, cyclonic or hurricane-style winds of macroeconomic risks. So, so let me just push you a little bit further on this point. I mean, you you emphasize government myopia. Uh, let's go back to 2013, 2014, when the outlines of India's twin balance sheet crisis were already apparent. That is, the over-indebtedness experienced by large infrastructure companies and the high and rising share of non-performing assets on the books of uh, primarily public sector banks. You note in the book that in many ways, and you've just said it again, the problems experienced in Japan and in Europe have been rather similar to what India has gone through. Uh, In all cases, you go through a period of severe banking stress, uh, and and the authorities fail to adequately recapitalize their struggling banking sectors. Uh, In the Indian case in particular, is it just the same kind of myopia that that prevented authorities from taking decisive action? Because, you know, I remember talking with people, even who were advising the prime minister at the time on the campaign trail, uh, and their hair was on fire saying, unless you solve this twin balance sheet issue, uh, you will not be able to remove this vice-like grip on the economy. And there's no way in which, uh, no matter how much you spend, the investment cycle will be rejuvenated. Yes, uh, I think there are three factors uh, that are at work here. Uh, You know, typically at the beginning of the uh, terms, governments are sometimes willing to actually undertake the effort of cleaning up the banking sector balance sheets uh, when they have gone bad. You know, part of it is uh, it's convenient politically as well in a narrative to say that banks were left in a very bad shape by the previous government. We are going to clean it up. And then, you know, hopefully, as I said, the process of cleanup is long and painful. It takes minimum two to three years to rebuild the balance sheets back to a healthy shape. And so hopefully, if they are in good shape by the time the next electoral cycle comes about, you know, you can claim victory both for the cleanup as well as for the healthy credit growth that may come about when banks are restored to reasonable shape. So early on in the electoral cycle, they are willing to come along. And as I say in the preface chapter uh, of my book, uh, indeed, for 10 months uh, since I joined, 10 to 12 months, it looked like we were on track. Uh, There was government commitment to reform the banks, uh, put in capital, but only in the healthier banks, not so much in the weaker banks put the weaker banks under prompt corrective action so that they stopped bleeding and became smaller over a period of time, uh, and resolve the underlying defaulted borrowers through government's own fast-track resolution mechanism of insolvency and bankruptcy code. But what happened, and I think this is where the government myopia comes into play, is that uh, because of a few structural reforms that didn't work out uh, as planned, maybe they were ill-conceived in the first place, Uh, growth started slowing down and the government started resorting more and more 
to short-term policies as the election horizon kept getting closer and closer. And as I explained earlier, what's the most convenient short-term policy? Throw credit at the problem. Get the banking sector to lend to the economy so you can pump prime the growth of the economy to look good. And so as I explained, everything that we were trying to do in 10, 12 months to restore the foundations of financial stability in India uh, took a U-turn. Progress stalled. Uh, Capital was thrown at weaker banks rather than stronger banks. Banks were taken out of prompt corrective action uh, by diluting the standards. And there was a stay on resolution of some of the legacy loans, as you said, from fiscal stimulus of 9 to 11, 12. So I think the short-term compulsions uh, in the end, especially combined with weakness of growth, are, in my view, the most fundamental bottleneck. But I would add two more bottlenecks here. The second important bottleneck is bureaucracy, in my view, especially in India. Uh, For bureaucracy, uh, public sector banks uh, are a form of control. They are a form of turf. They give them a mechanism to try and re-engineer short-term growth when other policies that they have uh, tried to do have failed. And you can actually see that when growth has slowed, because it's a combination of the failure of policies in various ministries, they all come together in in a nice uh, synchronized orchestra of essentially saying it's the central bank's fault, the interest rates have been kept very high, they are trying to clean up the banks when the economy should be on a revival path, they need to cut rates, they need to relax the standards. And the central bank becomes sort of like this common outside enemy, so to speak, for everyone who's inside the government, because now they can deflect attention from their failures, their mediocrity of choices, uh, and focus actually attention uh, collectively on getting the central bank to take the blame, uh, get compromised, what I call as fiscal dominance, uh, you know, get it to cut rates, get it to pump liquidity, get it to relax the credit standards. So I think bureaucracy in India has also played a key role in resisting the banking sector reforms uh, in the end. And third, which is uh, which is a less appreciated, uh, subtle, but I think an equally important bottleneck is that if you if you take an objective view of 40 to 50 years of public sector banking in India, who has it served? It was done under the guise of development and financial inclusion. For the longest time, that is not what these banks were doing. Uh, in fact, India's credit to GDP ratio is still barely between 50 to 60 percent uh, in the aggregate. So clearly, this 50-year experiment has not played out Uh, as it was championed and marketed uh, to start with. But who has it served the most? Uh, uh, In my view, uh, the the constituency that it has served the most is middle class in India that gets sort of cushy, not the best paying, but sort of high job security uh, kind of positions uh, at these public sector banks, by just public sector banks, you know, the public sector, insurance companies, power finance companies, other kinds of state-owned enterprises. And this labor part, the labor unions, uh, are a very important part of the constituency that resists any change. Uh, Because we are reaching in India a situation where the fiscal costs of continuing to bail out public sector banks and the huge losses that they keep undertaking are perhaps becoming untenable. Uh, They are now competing 
with what is, you know, COVID-related relief, repair, and other efforts that are required. Now, that means you have to restructure this system. The decisions that were taken 40, 50 years back to nationalize a big part of the banking system may have to be gradually unbound. The governance of these banks may have to be taken out of government's hands and be brought back to the markets. But when the markets take over these banks, eventually they will want to change the incentive structures. Jobs will not be as secure without performance. Uh, And this is a churn that the labor unions will also resist. And therefore, they want the cushy government ownership just the way the depositors want the safety of the public sector banks. The labor wants the safety of government ownership and weak governance because then their jobs remain cushy. So the government, the bureaucracy, and the labor, they are all three big impediments, in my view, to turning around the public sector banking. But if I had to pick one out of these, I would say, The primacy of the problem here is with the myopia of the government, because ultimately it is going to require political will to turn this sector around. And if electoral compulsions keep coming in the way of getting political consensus, then, you know, this is just a ticking time bomb as far as the fiscal costs are concerned. You know, you have been a votary for strong, independent central banking. In the book, you argue that central banks must be granted de jure, not just de facto independence, and that this is an important signal of their credibility, both internally as well as to the the outside world. Um, Of course, there's a large literature in economics about the role of central bank independence. The impression many observers get, um, who are not insiders, but people who are viewing the system from the outside, is that India is heading in the wrong direction when it comes to this issue of central bank independence. Do you think that there's something to this commonly held sentiment? Uh, I would say certainly there is. Uh, And what I try to explain in the book, and uh, uh, Dr. Reddy's masterful forward uh, to my book also provides a fairly compelling historical perspective, that essentially what happens over stretches of time is that uh, when growth is strong, government balance sheets become uh, more manageable. Uh, You know, they are raising decent tax revenues, household savings uh, are high if the growth rate has been high, so it's easy for the government to borrow in the markets at reasonable costs. Uh, And when that situation arises, uh, they don't need to actually uh, start looking to dominate the central bank to help uh, the funding of the government borrowing programs, either through cutting of interest rates, buying of government debt, or as I said, at times, pump priming uh, of the economy by relaxing bank lending uh, standards and capital standards. Uh, now, what are so why do these things fluctuate over a period of time? And I think it's very important to understand this because it's not just that economics is an outcome of the policies that the central bank follows. In my view, The economics also determines how much the central bank is going to be under pressure from the governments uh, in order to compromise its policies. So take 70s and 80s, for example. Uh, India was mostly a centralized, nationalized economy. We had huge presence of the state in real economy as well as in banking. Uh, And Dr. Reddy puts it in a very witty manner that 
the government, the central bank, and the public sector banks were a Hindu undivided family in which no one kept anyone's accounts. Now, in that economy, it didn't matter for a while uh, because, you know, there was no private sector. Who were you crowding out? No one really, because there was no private sector to talk of. But of course, the imbalances were building up and the growth rate that could be attained over that period was barely three, three and a half percent. And ultimately, we had the balance of payments crisis nevertheless. Now, in the early 90s and, and 1998 to 2003, India liberalized the economy. The government divested its stakes from public sector enterprises. The growth was high. Global growth was very high. And the situation was very conducive to allow the central bank to become more and more independent and operationally autonomous. In fact, the central bank got out of direct purchases of government uh, treasury bills or meeting the government short-term expenditures for the first time. Uh, And, you know, a series of reforms were put in place, both on fiscal uh, uh, management as well as on central bank's operational autonomy to actually move the economy from a system that was primarily geared for the government and the state-owned banks to becoming a more decentralized, liberalized, market-based economy. But then came the global financial crisis. Growth slowed down. Global growth created headwinds uh, for domestic economies' growth as well. And gradually, over a period of time, the government balances started slipping because growth was not easy to come by. They started resorting to the fiscal stimulus of doing directed or behest lending to various parts of the economy. Uh, it didn't it didn't work out well as we discussed that leverage boom went bust uh, and as a result of these weakening government balances weak growth and over this period of time actually the household savings rate has also been declining which is a somewhat underappreciated important macroeconomic fact over the last decade that household savings have been declining in india especially over the last uh, 4 5 years as a percentage of the gdp all of this meant that the conditions that were conducive to allow the central bank to remain autonomous for the economy to become more market-oriented now started disappearing. And what we are seeing, therefore, is a re-emergence of the fiscal dominance of the central bank. There are so many pressure points, as I I give six concrete examples, all the way from the, the desire for central bank's balance sheet to interventions in government bond markets to disclosure of bank loan losses, to, you know, uh, regulatory forbearances where you simply say that, uh, you know, uh, banks can continue to lend even if they are not in great shape. And all all of these uh, factors have taken over. And I would just make last point here, Milan, which is that therefore, why is the independence of the central bank important in the letter of the law? Because over periods of time, conditions that will create incentives to fiscally dominate the central bank keep changing. Now, if the letter of the law is very weak to start with, you know, the RBI Act is one of the weakest acts in the world in terms of granting operational autonomy to the central bank. So if the letter of the law is weak, it becomes very easy for the underlying factors to lead to fiscal dominance of the central bank. Um, And so therefore, I think there is a room to create institutions that will lead to more rule-based decision-making so that the central bank cannot be pressurized to engage in discretion 
and dilute its regulatory standards. I mean, I suppose this is a, a natural segue to ask you about the speech that probably got the most attention uh, by certainly the press during your time at the RBI. And it's a speech where you spoke about this theme of central bank independence. And in it, you had the following to say, I'm going to quote, as many parts of the world today await greater government respect for central bank independence, independent central bankers will remain undeterred. Governments that do not respect a central bank's independence will sooner or later incur the wrath of financial markets, ignite economic fire, and come to rue the day they undermined an important regulatory institution, end quote. So that pr pretty powerful language. You know, in response to this, you know, there have been many people in government columnists and others who have argued that this statement of yours uh, in the Indian context is overly hyperbolic uh, or sens sensational. Insofar as we have seen two recent RBI governors exit in what you might call less than normal or ideal circumstances, Raghuram Rajan and Urjit Patel, uh, and the sky has not fallen as a result. Um, how would you respond to those who respond with this criticism? Yes, uh, my response is the following, that these two governors who have left, uh, they actually left behind a very important institution uh, for the country. And that institution was the inflation targeting framework uh, that has been put in place. Uh, of course, the government uh, ultimately put that into legislation, but these were the architects uh, of the inflation targeting framework. Now, what has this inflation targeting framework done? Uh, in spite of the uh, gradually slipping and now sharply slipping uh, fiscal deficits of the government, uh, they have kept inflation expectations of the markets relatively at bay for a while. In the last two to three quarters, inflation has risen very sharply, uh, partly on the back of food inflation, but even core inflation has risen very significantly and inflation expectations have started rising again. Nevertheless, for a stretch of time, because the central bank remained committed to inflation targeting, even though the underlying fiscal imbalances were picking up, uh, I think the macroeconomic situation has remained stable and not devolved to the situation of examples I gave in my A.D. Shroff Memorial Lecture, such as, say, Argentina or Turkey, where such credibility is actually not there because the central banks have not tied themselves to the mast, saying even when government debts are rising and the pressures are there, we will retain our focus uh, on inflation. I think the key question going forward, not just in India, but also in other central banks, is going to be as the government deficits and debts are mounting as we come out of COVID, will the central banks be able to retain their commitments to focus on price stability and not get distracted by the borrowing needs of the government. In emerging markets such as India, inflation is high even at present. In developed countries, inflation is short of the target, but increasingly both investors and uh, researchers are attaching a higher probability to inflation picking up as we recover from covid uh, given all the printing of money and the competition of governments and private sector for credit growth that might take place. Uh, and I was very careful <laughs> in the quote to say sooner or later. Uh, and I think we have to wait out because uh, usually for emerging markets, domestic imbalances are managed through repression of policies. Financial sector gets repressed to buy government bonds 
Central banks, depending upon their inflation targeting mandates and how strong they are, may get compromised to support government bond markets, etc. So emerging markets tend to use domestic policies to repress the economy for a while. Crisis doesn't take place, but of course you have weak growth and imbalances building up. Usually the problems get triggered through an external shock, such as uh, an increase in the interest rates by the Federal Reserve, a normalization of its balance sheet by the Federal Reserve. It could be an event such as a Brexit or a sovereign default somewhere else, which creates risk aversion towards emerging markets. And then the external investors vote with their feet uh, for economies that don't have the right uh, initial uh, conditions at, at that point of time. I, I, I still stand by my quote. I think that uh, economies which weaken their central bank's commitment to long-term policies, not just on inflation, but also on bank regulation, uh, also on protecting depositor interests, those whose central banks get weakened will probably get a whiplash of the markets then you get a combination of domestic imbalances and external sector shocks. You know, I should say we're recording this in mid-October 2020, uh, but I'm curious about your views on how the present economic crisis will shape the future of relations between the government uh, and the banks. You know, there is already a moratorium on loan repayments in place. Uh, many people are openly arguing that regulators must continue to go easy on borrowers. Of course, these arguments have been made before, and we've seen the protracted resolution that followed. Uh, but are we in uh, a special period of time because of COVID? And does the widespread economic havoc that this pandemic um, uh, that has brought forward, is that a reasonable enough excuse to take the foot off the gas pedal, as it were? Uh, I'm somewhat of a stickler on this. Uh, my experience has been no matter how large the shock, it always pays off to run a well-capitalized and healthy banking system. You know, at the time of the uh, global financial crisis, you know, it was the largest shock uh, at that point of time of our lifetimes. And what you observe since then is that uh, Countries such as United States, which fixed their banks quickly after the banking failures that took place, uh, have recovered far better in terms of their growth and resilience of the banking system than countries, several parts of Europe, where the banking systems were not actually recapitalized in a decisive manner. Uh, what does what is the lesson therein uh, for uh, recovery during and after COVID? Uh, it's one that while clearly it is super important to provide relief and debt restructuring relief to the real economy, if the costs are borne by the banking system, we need a strategy for them to be able to absorb these losses. If the losses that they uh, bear are not provided for quickly, then what's going to happen is that in 12 or 18 months, when recovery out of COVID is picking up steam, private credit growth is seeing a revival, uh, undercapitalized banks may remain focused on legacy problems. They will again do zombie lending and lazy lending rather than lending to healthier borrowers of the economy. And rather than being an amplifier of post-COVID recovery impulses, they might actually act as impediments uh, to the recovery because they won't be channeling capital efficiently when we come out of the COVID shock. Uh, 
So in my view, the benign equity market conditions that we have right now should be used over a six-month, 12-month time, but in a decisive manner to ensure that the health of the banking and the rest of the financial sector is in great shape when we are coming out of the COVID shock and growth impulses are picking up again. The the important thing to keep in mind is that uh, right now, demand is very weak. So it's it's all right for banks not to be that well capitalized. You know, they are buying government bonds in a very significant way. Uh, all the debts are getting restructured. And so the losses are not getting marked up. And so the stress is not manifesting. I would actually call it a form of a silent crisis uh, that is playing out where the regulators the world over have agreed that we will not make the landing very hard uh, for the banks and the financial sector. But if the economic losses are there, they will have to be recognized at some point. And the preparation for that must start now. Otherwise, the legacy of these losses will leave scars uh, for the real economy down the line. So as we come to the end of our conversation, I want to ask you about your views on another hot button issue, which is the privatization of public sector banks. Um, I recall meeting a ruling party member of parliament several years ago, who, when asked about the prospect of such privatization, responded that a direct push to privatize public sector banks uh, would likely never happen. And the reason is that instead, the government would uh, be inclined to pursue a strategy of slowly merging consolidated public sector banks while gradually opening up more and more space, prying that open for the private sector. And so this this is a kind of a strategy of you know death by 1,000 cuts rather than a kind of you know direct assault. Is this strategy good enough, in your view, to revive the things that ail the Indian banking system? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I fully agree that this is what the <laughs> governments and the uh, bureaucrats want. Uh, you know, they want to do the minimal uh, so that you don't fall off the precipice because, you know, it helps to have control over these banks uh, to pump prime the economy when the electoral compulsions arise. See, mergers don't change the economic scale uh, of the public sector banking's imprint uh, in the Indian economy. Uh, there are some advantages of merging them. You have to staff fewer positions. Maybe intercreditor agreements are easier to coordinate if there are fewer players in the system. But mergers by themselves uh, don't really solve the fundamental problem of governance and quality of these banks. Now, there's an important difference between a public sector bank and a public sector enterprise that we have to keep in mind when thinking about this. And what is the difference? Uh, if I'm getting a bad car from a public sector enterprise, I'm not going to buy it. Okay, If it's an inefficient uh, company that's producing substandard cars that are not fit for the Indian roads anymore, I'm not going to buy that vehicle. In contrast, as we have been discussing, the sovereign guarantee makes the deposits of the public sector banks attractive on a safety dimension compared to some other banks' deposits, such as private banks. Now, as a result of this, this backdoor or creeping liberalization of the financial sector happens really, really, really slowly compared to what would happen, say, in a telecom sector, uh, for example, when, you know, entry was allowed and private players gradually just took up the market share very, very quickly. Now, this is not good enough because you can't have an entire 
five or six year period where 50% plus of the deposits are with banks that aren't in a capacity to lend well to the real economy. That's going to mean low growth, uh, low private investment, low consumption, uh, and so on. Last point, Milan, uh, here is that I think this idea that there will never be a factor that leads to reform uh, is, I think, overdone in India because reform can happen through internal consensus or reform can happen through financial constraints. When did Southeast Asian countries liberalize uh, their financial sector? This was when they had a Southeast Asian crisis uh, in 97, 98. Uh, The costs of bailing out the uh, economy were so large that they had to uh, shared majority stakes, and even in some cases have a complete reprivatization of their financial sector. I think we are reaching a point in India where the fiscal costs of continuing to bail out public sector banks are becoming so large that they are competing now with alternative and important expenditures such as relief and repair uh, for the COVID-affected parts of the economy. In my view, we should not wait for a crisis uh, to make this happen because then you are under duress. You end up relinquishing these stakes at very low prices. You get the wrong kind of buyers into the financial system. It's better to lay out a blueprint right now for an 18-month or a 24-month period over which the government will improve governance, shared stakes below majority, and eventually reprivatize uh, some of these banks. If not, you know, financial constraints may actually force these decisions to restructure the banking system. So, Viral, there are so many other things I want to ask you about. I, I, I sent a message last night, several messages to economist friends uh, asking for suggestions. And so I think you're going to have to write a whole second book because they had many more questions that they wanted me to ask. But but let me end by asking you to perhaps reflect on a kind of more philosophical note, which is the role of Indian economists based overseas. You know, I think it's fair to say that economists like yourself, there are, of course, many others, have often found themselves in the crosshairs in recent times. And I'm wondering, how would you address those who are skeptical that Indians, NRIs residing abroad, have a real role and contribution to make in policymaking back home? Uh, I think the the right way to see this is that it's not really a clash about uh, you know, those who are trained domestically versus those who are trained abroad or based abroad. I think it's a clash of ideologies. Uh, I think it's a clash of wanting the economy to be run more in a more centralized and nationalized manner uh, with the bureaucracy and the government playing a bigger and bigger role versus making the economy more private, liberalized, uh, decentralized, uh, and through market forces. Uh, My sense is, by and large, the foreign-trained or foreign-based economists have have wanted to strike a better balance uh, between the role of the government, the central bank, the markets, uh, and the banking system. They have wanted the government to reduce its imprint in the banking system and in several other non-strategic sectors where the government still remains very big in India. If you want, it's like the debate between uh, Keynes and Hayek, you know. Uh, you know, everyone looks up to Keynesian policies when there is a downturn, but we pay too little attention to the Austrian economists who warned us that if you don't keep these uh, stimulus policies contained, 
the role of the government will keep getting bigger and bigger, and then there will be growth damaging influence that a large government will start uh, putting on the economy. I think it's the clash of these ideologies. I think, in my view, the discussions in India, especially the narrative, is regressing in taking the economy more towards the 70s and 80s style model of a centralized, nationalized version of the economy, rather than the 90s and early 2000s narrative, where we were growing very fast, and that was on the back of substantial reforms that happened to liberalize the economy. Uh, I think it's a good fight. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, We need all the sound bites to make a critical voice for striking a better balance uh, in the Indian economy, in my view. My guest on the show today is Viral Acharya. He is the CV Star Professor of Economics at the New York University Stern School of Business. For a two-year period from January 2017 to July 2019, Viral was a deputy governor at the Reserve Bank of India. He's the author of a new book entitled Quest for Restoring Financial Stability in India. It's been published by Sage. Viral, um, the book is a kind of picture of clarity about uh, the the banking and financial crisis in India. I think this podcast um, uh, is a picture of clarity in terms of how you've been able to unpack what what can be a very technical um, uh, and difficult to grasp set of topics for our audience. So thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. Uh, Thank you, Milan, for the opportunity. Grantham Asha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Maya Krishna Rogers is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.